This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So we've been looking at uh, the reactive and the creative minds, particularly using the Wheel of Life. Um, and I wanted uh, today to look at the outer rim of the Wheel of Life once again. We've already seen it, but just to have a look at it again. And try and work out how that process of mental conditioning actually works, what it's actually like uh, to go through that. And there's one thing in particular that I want to concentrate on, one of the images around the edge. So if you start at the top of the Wheel of Life, um, uh, the top, just on, just top right, uh, you'll see an image of a blind person walking along. Um, and then if you follow uh, round to the right, you see an image of a potter making pots. And then you'll see a monkey. I hope. They're, they're not all exactly the same, the different wheels of life, but uh, uh, on this one we've got here, it's a monkey. Um, and then after the monkey, you will see a boat, uh, a boat on the ocean or on a river. Uh, and then you'll see a house, and the house usually has five windows and a door. Uh, then you'll see a man and a woman embracing. Uh, you'll see somebody with an arrow in their eye. Um, uh, somebody getting a drink, a glass of water, somebody picking fruit from a tree, um, and then uh, it's actually a man and woman, usually a man and woman making love, and then a woman giving birth, uh, and then a corpse being carried to the graveyard. So those are the, uh, the 12 links around the edge, the 12 images. Um, and uh, Akasha Devi uh, did go into this a little bit before, and I'm going to be concentrating on some of the earlier ones uh, today. So, what are they? Um, what do they symbolise, uh, the images? The first one, uh, the blind man, symbolises ignorance. And then independence upon ignorance arises unconscious habit energies. Um, habit energies is the word I'm going to use for it. And that's the potter making pots. Uh, the pots are the uh, actions that you do in your life that actually produce sort of objects that will then be adorning your kitchen maybe for the rest of your life. They'll be fired in a kiln, they'll be quite hard, uh, and they'll be what you find around you for the rest of your life, symbolically speaking. Those are the habit energies. Uh, and then the monkey in the tree is uh, the monkey of self-awareness, consciousness, self-awareness. And then what about the boat? So the boat is you as a formed, experiencing person. And it's a boat, and usually the boat has got four passengers in it. And I'll tell you why that is. If you look very closely at this one, you can, you can probably count three, but it might be the fourth one is hiding somewhere, you know, down in the galley, having a meal or something like that. Um, so this is you as an experienced, experiencing person. The boat is, uh, is form, particularly the body, 
And the four passengers are aspects of the mind, of mental functioning. And so the, the experiencing person uh, then has uh, a source of experience. So the house is the senses. Uh, so there are the five windows, the five senses, and the door of the mind. Uh, so the mind is reg- regarded as a sixth sense because into the mind comes images and memories and uh, popping up sort of uh, feelings and dreams and all that kind of thing. So in a way the mind is a little bit like a sense uh, with an input coming into it. Uh, and then we have embracing. A man and a woman embracing is contact. So suddenly everything is ready and the external world hits us and we experience contact. And then we experience feeling. So you've got the senses, contact and feeling. Feeling here, painful feeling, rather graphically illustrated by somebody shot with an arrow. Um, uh, senses, contact, feeling. This is, this is the, the sphere of human experience. Yeah? And then uh, you've got the reaction. So once you've got the senses, contact and feeling, uh, you're driven round the wheel of life in circles because of the reaction. And this is a very crucial stage. And this is the thing that Bodhi Lila was talking about last week, where from feeling um, into the receiving the glass, which is craving or thirst, uh, there's a gap. Uh, it doesn't particularly show it as any bigger a gap on this wheel of life, uh, but there is a gap which you can widen. It might be hardly any gap. Uh, but between feeling and craving there's a gap. Feeling doesn't have to lead into craving, uh, or if it's unpleasant feeling, it doesn't have to lead into aversion. So this is a really, really important bit, uh, the gap. Um, and then uh, picking the fruit, uh, craving leads to grasping. Uh, grasping leads to becoming, uh, and becoming is symbolised by the man and the woman making love, or sometimes by a pregnant woman. Uh, and then uh, becoming leads to birth, and birth leads to uh, decay and death. Um, now, I sh- I'm not going to go into these later phases. They're very, very interesting. What exactly does that mean? Why should grasping lead to becoming? What does becoming leading to birth mean? What does that mean? But I'll leave you to think about that, or look it up, uh, or listen to, to a talk. I did um, uh, give you a link to uh, a, um, a paper by Sandra Achita called The Creative and Reactive Mind that goes into this in some detail. So what's happening in this last bit, in a way, is, uh, is the consequences of impermanence, birth and death and round again. Um, but what I want to do is to go back to a boat. Uh, and the boat, uh, remember there's four passengers usually in the boat. Um, I've got a picture here. So this one is, um, is blown up from our wheel of life. Uh, this photograph showing the boat with the four passengers. So I'll pass that around so you can have a look at it. Um, here's another one, actually. This is rather nice. This is from this book called Tibetan Almanac. Um, and they cut it down so there's only two passengers. It's rather beautiful, don't you think? Uh, by a Tibetan artist. So what is going on? This, uh, do you remember what I said? That the boat represents you as a person, coming together as a person. Um, 
And what it's usually said is that it, it's the, um, the five skandhas, the five heaps. And this is going to be my main topic. I want to look at how our reactions work. Because if we could see how our reactive mind works, we could discover how to be creative instead. Um, so the boat is the body, the objective part of our experience. And then it contains four scandals, four mental scandals. One of these is self-awareness. One of these is habit energies. We've both seen both of these. The monkey's there in the boat, self-awareness. The habit energies are there in the boat. Uh, the potter in his pots. And then also perception and also uh, sensation or feeling, Vedana. And that also turns up later, uh, the man and the woman embracing. So they're all there in the boat. We're all ready for it. And I was trying to work out what these four were doing in the boat. If you were trying to sort of enhance that image, the boat is your body. Then these four are four different things that your mind does. What does your mind do? It's got this... Self-awareness, it's got this, the habit energies, um, it's got uh, the process of, uh, of perception or recognition, uh, and it's also got feeling. Any ideas what they might be doing? What because a boat needs a crew, doesn't it? Uh, it's not just a ferry that's taking across, it needs crewing, it needs uh, specialists uh, to work the different functions on the boat. So if you're good at this, uh, at imagination, you're good at working out roles, uh, then what do you think they could be? The, the habit energy would be rowing. So the habit energy could be rowing, because that's the, yeah. the driving force, yeah, or, or working the outboard motor or something, yeah. The awareness would be steering. Awareness steering. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. So that leaves um, uh, perception or recognition... And feeling. Perception is a lookout. Yeah, this is really interesting actually. But these are exactly this is exactly what I thought. But then when it came to feeling, I thought, what would feeling be there? Now, if you look on this little thing here, one of the beings in the boat is just lying back and trailing their arm in the water, and I've got a feeling that the artist of this image thought, oh, maybe that's feeling. You know, it's just sort of lying there and just sort of enjoying the ride. But I think that's not really quite right. I think feeling, as a with its role in our lives, this feeling, this sensation of pleasant or unpleasant, is a much more plays a much more active role in our little boat than just lying back and, and straight trailing its hand in the water. How about feeling as unconscious decision making processes? I think that's. I think it is decision making. There's decision making going on. So maybe the feeling is actually the captain. In a way, the, the feeling is the one that's really running the boat, although we don't really realise that. I mean, maybe the, uh, this is not traditional, because traditionally, I've, I try, I've done my best, I've done my research, and the only one that sometimes says that um, self-awareness is the one steering, but it doesn't usually see what, say what the other uh, roles are in the boat. So this is just us trying to come up with conclusions. But I think you know, that decision-making process is what's going on, and, and I'd like to look into that a little bit, of what that's actually like. And I want to start um, uh, describing that by, by telling you um, a story from my personal experience, uh, which is very much to do with feeling, becoming the decision-making, the unconscious decision-making, uh, having that role. Um, and this was back in the early 90s. Now, 
I, at that time, was um, at the Cambridge Buddhist Centre, uh, and I managed to arrange to have a sabbatical. And I was going to go just travelling. In fact, what I decided to do originally was just to walk outside Cambridge uh, with a credit card in my pocket and just put my thumb out and just see where I ended up. And then I thought, well, I might end up in Coventry. Um, so I thought, no, what I'll do is I'll go over to Ireland and I'll do it when I get to Ireland because that would be much more interesting. So I had these wonderful plans. I, was, I had about three months I could do this in, uh, you know, and I thought, I'll just see what happens. You know, just have an adventure. But there was a long retreat that was about to start in Spain, um, in the mountains at, at Guquiloca. And the person who was supposed to be organising this retreat fell ill and couldn't go. And they were trying to find somebody who had three or four months free ahead of them. And of course, I had three or four months free. I just arranged this time. You know, very few people could, could at such short notice do it. So they said, will you come and organise on this retreat? And I sort of thought, oh, I don't know. Well, I suppose, well, maybe, yeah, why not? Yeah. So I thought, yeah, why not? Have three months, four months, you know, un, um, uh, no charge, uh, living in the mountains of Spain with a really nice group of people. So uh, out I go to Spain. But when I got there, well, actually before I got there, but at the beginning of the retreat, I made a discovery. And the discovery was that everybody else on the retreat had got together for a big planning meeting before I was even involved. And they made this terrible decision on this planning meeting. And the decision they made was that they wanted to live like Buddhist monks, which, okay, fair enough. You're, you're out on a Buddhist retreat for four months. Why not live like Buddhist monks? Fair enough, you know. Um, and live a simple life, lots of meditation, all that kind of thing. But no, this had gone a bit further. They'd all decided to wear monastic robes. And I thought, oh no, you know, what an awful idea. And I remember when I first went along to my first Buddhist centre down in Brighton, if people had been all dressed up in fancy robes there, I would have just run a mile. I wouldn't have been involved. I wasn't interested in, in Buddhism as a, as a religious as a tradition or as an Eastern exotic sort of thing. And so I had this terrible dilemma. I thought, I could just say, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. I refuse. I'm not going to put these stupid clothes on. I'm not an Eastern monk. You know, it's a silly idea. Um, but then I thought, well, this seems a bit petulant, really, doesn't it? You know, they've democratically, they had their meeting. You know, I came in late. Um, I can't really sort of disrupt the whole thing by the only person who's going around in jeans and a t-shirt and all the rest of them are sitting there with their, you know, their robe, their nice, nice bhikkhu monk robes on, you know. So I thought I'd put a grin of it. But I really hated them, you know. I couldn't work out how to, I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, bhikkhu robes, but you have three of them and I can't, I'm, I'm, I've completely suppressed my skill in putting them on, so I can't remember how it goes, but the lower robe is quite simple, it just goes like a skirt like this, uh, but then the middle robe has this very complicated thing where it goes over the shirt, have you ever tried putting them on? It's, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Um, and it goes over the shoulder and sort of, and, that, and then the top robe is really a cloak, the third robe, which they only wear in, in cold weather, you know. So we had to do, we had to do this and you had to put them on in the morning, you had to try and do your work period, trying cooking in these stupid rows where the upper ones would just keep falling off, you know, even going up, um, climbing up to the ridge, you know, where we would do our rituals around the valley, uh, oh, it was so difficult with these, like wearing a little skirt going up, <laughs> I don't know how women manage it, I really don't, <laughs> um, and so, so I had to sort of, I, I just, and I would sit there in meditation, stupid, 
so stupid, you know, and this kind of thing. <laughs> and it started to sort of rather dominate the first few weeks of the retreat, you know, all this stuff going on. But then I had this realisation that this was just actually, this was just a preference. I just didn't like them. And I sort of thought, okay, I don't like them. I'm not going to pretend I do like them, you know, but I don't like them. But, I mean, it's not killing me. It's not even particularly embarrassing because there's nobody else around sort of looking at these silly clothes, you know. Uh, it might be mildly inconvenient, but, you know, there are, I can see there are, the others got together. They fancied doing it. You know, it means you're all sitting together looking very sort of, um, um, you know, zen-like, all in the same clothes in the shrine room. You know, it sort of get, gets away from people sort of putting their funny T-shirts with slogans on or... People, some people dressing really nicely, some people looking scruffy. You know, it gets away from all that. Everyone's wearing the same thing um, and, and all sorts of things like that. And I thought, I'm just being a little bit stupid here, aren't I? And, and in fact, more than that, what I realised was that I was being ruled by my preferences. I was actually being dominated in my mind by my likes and dislikes. And that was a really valuable Realization, realization for me because I realized it wasn't just to do with robes this was happening in all sorts of other areas in my life where just because I happened to like tea not coffee or something I would actually make my life difficult and complicated you know okay it's, it's fair enough to prefer tea to strychnine but coffee what difference does it make whether you drink tea or coffee you know I mean and some people they've got the same taste buds that I've got Probably the actual experience of them drinking a coffee is pretty much the same as when I drink it. Yet I go, ugh, I don't like that. And they go, ooh, what a good cup of coffee this is. You know? And it really did get me thinking a lot. Um, and, and I'll say later uh, what happened as a result of all that, but it did make me really think about this issue of Vedana, of, of, um, of how we are influenced by the, by the, uh, the flavour, uh, the tone of our experience and as to whether that tone is pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, and for me, it was putting on these robes and looking at myself in them and dealing with them was all unpleasant. There was loads of unpleasant Vedanar going on. But it wasn't life-threatening unpleasant Vedanar. It wasn't, it wasn't like I was about to die of hypothermia or be poisoned or anything like that. Um, it was just preferences. It was just what I fancied. So, we've got this captain in the boat. And this captain is working with or trying to sort of uh, rule it over uh, the other scanders, the other heaps that make up the personality. Trying to make the boat go in the direction that he or she wants. uh, Telling the lookout perception what to do. um, uh, Telling the rower how to row. uh, Telling the consciousness steering which way to steer. uh, All this thing to some extent, is being ruled by our preferences in our life. And this is completely normal. This is the way that human beings are designed. In a way, this is what evolution has done. Evolution has set us up with preferences and with mechanisms for generating new preferences. And it does strike me that, um, you know, those of you who've got children, um, some, not all parents like this, but sometimes you take a, ch- a child would be taken into a supermarket, especially a small child, and they look around, thousands and thousands of things. You know, the sweet counter, hundreds of all this. And the mother or the father is saying to the child, you know, what would you like now? You know, and they've got to sort of go, they've got to, they've got to try and decide what they like and what they don't like. And children do get trained in this, don't they, until they can become 
you know, very annoying <laughs> in, uh, in how much they insist on getting what they want and, and, and not uh, being fed with what they don't want, you know. But I think to some extent parents actually encourage this, some parents at least, is this unfair? But, you know, by saying all the time, you know, what do you want? Would you like a balloon? Can I get you a balloon? You know, you, can I get you an ice cream? Where should we go today? You know, do you want to go to the zoo? Do you want to go to the museum? All this kind of thing, you know. What, what kind of, what are you going to choose to do at school? You know, what, you know, all that sort of thing. Choice, 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 choice. Where you're choosing between, very often, completely e- even alternatives. Not one life-threatening and one um, delightful. And this is part of a, of a broader field of interest, it seems to me, which is the whole area of habits of the reactive mind, in other words. And that's why I feel it does fit in quite well with the theme we're looking at at the moment. How do you move from a reactive mind uh, that's dominated by certain habitual approaches? Uh, how do you move to a creative mind instead? Now, habits can be very useful things. They can be the healthy regularities you build into your life, such as a daily meditation. But often habits are limiting, they're restrictive, they're reactive. Um, Now, what is it that keeps those habits alive? That is the habit energies. The habit energies, which are the sanskaras, is the technical term for them. The habit energies, uh, which are the, uh, the tendencies that you've built up. Um, so I want to say a little bit about, before I move on to uh, the captain of the vessel, I want to look at the, the person doing the rowing, uh, the habit energies. So how do these arise? Well, say I'm afraid of dogs. Uh, every time I encounter a dog, I probably drop into a groove of shock and alarm and anxiety and trying to get away. And because of that, the groove gets a bit deeper. My tendency to sort of be anxious in the, in the, in the presence of dogs uh, gets worn uh, deeper. And so I act from certain habit energies, uh, in this case, fear of dogs, and, but, and they've built up from the interaction of all my past actions and my past experiences. Then those habit energies are reinforced and my action is more likely to be habitual the next time round because I've I've sort of uh, been digging a groove for myself. Uh, George Eliot, uh, there's a lovely novel by George Eliot that's not so well known as someone else called Romola, uh, set in Renaissance Florence. And she says of one of the villains in this novel, the little rills of selfishness, the little streams of selfishness, had united and made a channel so they could never again meet with the same resistance. And this is her description of what had happened. Why had that person become a bad person? And here she's talking about selfishness. And maybe self-orientation is the characteristic of all these limiting, reactive kinds of habits. Habit energies have a flavour. They have an emotional flavour. And that flavour is the the flavour of self-centeredness, or need, I suppose, need. So it's not that I just happen to do things in a particular way because I'm used to it. Deep down there's need behind my habits. Uh, There's need in the habit energies that drive me. Now we all know uh, the experiences where we don't actually have to be habitual, where we can be much more free and spontaneous. So if you think of those situations, you can size up the whole situation, you can see it in the light of what you're trying to achieve, and then you can act wholeheartedly, appropriately, spontaneously. That's the ideal, really, isn't it? And I think we've all experienced that sometimes. But often I'm incapable of doing that. 
And I think this is because of, usually because of a sort of an insecurity. I don't have the confidence just to act spontaneously. Um, the old habitual ways, they're reassuring. In a way, they are me. They define who I am. Um, for example, if I'm going uh, walking along through Hampstead Heath or something like that, you know, uh, there's the birds, there's the beautiful May greenery, there's the flowers, there's the trees, and everything like that. But I'm not fully there. Maybe I'm filling my mind with anxious, busy little thoughts. And it seems as if I'm trying to give some kind of solidity, some kind of predictability to my experience. I'm sort of reassuring myself everything's all right. I'm not saying it's always like this, but it can be. And so I'm missing the reality of, the, of nature. You know. um, so moving on from the habit energies uh, to the boat. I want to think about the boat next. The boat is, uh, is the body. And there are habits that we've got that are connected with uh, the objective part of our experience that are not to do with our internal life, they're to do with our external life. And the Buddha called these habits the habits of mind-making. What he, he talked about three particular destructive processes that we undergo because of our holding on to uh, the insecure um, sense of identity, sense of self and so on. And these are mind-making, I-making, and the conceit, I am. Those are the three <coughs> areas. Mind-making... I making and the conceit I am. The conceit I am is something very, very subtle, which I may talk about a little bit. The other two are more easy to understand. Mind making <coughs> is when you use what is outside you to shore up your security. I making is when you start to work on your own identity, what you think, who you think you are, and what you think you are. And this, I think, is a really interesting teaching by the Buddha, just to notice those things. Um, so mind making are the most obvious need based habits um, and they tend to come from cravings for external things like food, possessions or a lover and the, the identification habits the eye making are more subtle uh, they are to do with your views, your uh, sense of who you are and what is important to you and the I am habits are the most subtle of all uh, and it's said that um, you can recognise enlightenment by evaluating these. Uh, an enlightened person has stopped doing it. Has stopped doing mind-making, has stopped doing eye-making, and the I am conceit has gone. Uh, so that you can look around, if you meet anybody, check, check them out, see if they're still doing it. I'm, still, I'm afraid I'm still doing these things. <laughs> it's uh, mind-making. Yeah. I making and the conceit I am. Yes, I don't know if they've got an overall name actually. I don't know if any of have you come across a name for them? Sorry. I don't think there's a classification name for the three of them. No. No. So if you're habitually reaching out or pushing away what's external, um, this is mind making. Uh, it's selfish attachment or self-interest is the way it's defined in the Pali Dictionary. They're not necessarily, it's not just to do with possessions. You might think mind-making is to do with having a better car or having a better house. But it's not just that, it's to do with um, my body, 
uh, my gender identity, all that kind of thing. And so I made a little list of the things that, that uh, I and probably others tend to associate with mind-making. The place you live and what you do with that. Your possessions um, that you collect, your garden, uh, your home decor, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the colours you choose, all that kind of thing. Um, the place you go on holiday, um, your choice of clothing, uh, your hairstyle, what you tell when you go to the hairdresser, what you tell them to do. Um, yes, as I say, your, your gender and associations there, your sexual preference, the way you hold yourself, your posture, your, your, your body fitness and so on. Um, your expressions even, you know, what your face is doing, that's to do with uh, mind making very often. Um, and you can it's amazing how uh, somebody's face, if they've been meditating for a few days on a retreat, the face can completely change. They're no longer holding on to these mind-making uh, identities. Even your voice, the way you speak. So this can be uh, can actually lead to you can actually identify in this way. So some people are very body oriented, and their clothing and their appearance. Uh, and uh, their makeup and all that kind of thing in their hair is really the biggest way in which they express their identity. But I think more commonly, identity comes from internal things. But it can be a, a mind-making thing. But more commonly, identity is a mind-making process. And for me, the strongest habits of eye-making, of the identity, are to do with likes and dislikes. Uh, are to do with that scandal, a Vedanar feeling. My preferences... So I want to go back to this one now. We've looked um, a little bit at the scandal of habit energies. We looked at the boat itself, the body, and the mind-making that's to do with the body and, and the objective world outside ourselves. Now let's come back again to likes and dislikes, uh, which is the sensational feeling scandal. Now, the thing about it is it's very difficult to convince myself of this, but feelings or preferences are not valid or invalid. But we tend to feel they are. We tend to feel that our preferences are objective. You know, that we're right in our preferences. Um, and of course we can probably find <coughs> arguments as to why we're right. And we may spend a lot of energy in arguing why Marmite is disgusting and honey is really nice. Or, or, or even why um, you know, our favourite politician is, is, a, is, is wonderful and our least favourite is, is, is evil and horrible. And I reinforce these preferences by a sort of um, a dialogue that goes on, sometimes an internal dialogue, sometimes by talking to other people, saying, oh, isn't, that, isn't it beautiful today? Like, I love this kind of... May, May is my favourite month. So do you see what I mean? Do you, do you, a lot of our speech is reinforcing our preferences, bouncing them off people, trying to get them supported by other people. Very interesting, all this thing. So we tend to be ruled by our likes and dislikes. So we went out for tea break today, and there was a tray, and there was a pot with ordinary tea, and there was a pot with herbal tea. There were two tins of biscuits. Each tin of biscuits had a choice of different types of biscuits. We had a choice of milk to go with the tea if we wanted, uh, or we could go and get some water. That's what a lot of choice. And did we, I mean, maybe, probably some of us just took whatever came. But probably some of us put a bit of energy into that and thought, you know, what shall I have today? You know, oh no, you're giving me the wrong thing. And, and oh, well, is there any sugar to put it? You know, see what I mean? 
all this stuff that we're doing. Uh, which biscuit? Oh, shall I? oh no, somebody's taken the last one. You know. <laughs> and you can see this with people as well. That our likes and dislikes are very much conditioned by people. So you'll meet somebody who you really don't like. But then you discover that another friend really likes them. And you think, how could they possibly like them? They're awful, they're horrible, you know. But yet they do. Or even love them, you know. And so they're just so arbitrary, these likes and dislikes we have. And I think that one of the, one of the reasons for doing the metabhavna meditation, where you choose this range of people, one that you really like, one that you really don't like, and one who... I don't know, they're neutral, you know. It's a really good exercise to do that, and sit down and dwell with the arbitrariness of our choice of the friend and the enemy uh, and the neutral person. It's not that you have to like the enemy. Meta is not to do with liking or disliking, and I'm going to come back to this. There are other ways of living that aren't dominated by likes and dislikes. So you can have meta for somebody you like, Metta meaning wishing them well, wishing them happiness. You can also have metta for someone you don't like. And you can also have metta for someone who's incredibly boring. It's, it's possible. So what I noticed with the robes is that my mind would get foggy. When I tried to be objective about it, I just couldn't really see it. I couldn't really detach from all my arguments as to why they were so bad. I did have arguments, you know. Oh, if everyone was wearing these, people like me coming along to centres would never come back again. I don't want people to get in the habit, you know, in our order of wearing robes, you know. Oh, no, no, no. And I had all, very, no doubt, very good reasons in a way. No doubt somebody else could provide equally good reasons in the other direction. So I had this fogginess of mind. And I realised it was not whether they were appropriate or not. That was not the issue as to whether it was appropriate for people to wear robes on that retreat or not. It was to do with my own preferences. Uh, it was to do with, it was just a dislike. And I, I wondered, as I said, who is boss here? Who's running this show? You know, is it, who's steering this boat? I mean, sorry, who's captaining this boat? The captain, uh, for me at that time, was just my preferences. And I felt a bit embarrassed uh, by it. And eventually I... I learnt to accept them. You know, I never actually grew to like them. I learnt to accept them. And I even started taking an interest in them. And there was one guy on the retreat who had been in the army, and he taught me this method of pressing your robes. He, he wanted his robes to be absolutely immaculate, you know. Um, but we didn't have an iron. We didn't have any electricity out there. You know? so, so how do you do this? What you do is you, you fold them up very neatly in a long strip, and you put them under your mattress and sleep on them. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a good way of doing it. So you get, uh, you, so you can do that. Rather than doing the ironing, just put your clothes under the mattress and sleep on them. <laughs> now, fortunately, people don't do this anymore. Uh, they don't wear monk-style robes on these retreats, but they do wear robes. At least the men do. I don't know if the women do. Um, I'll, I'll show you. These are, these are not optional, I don't think. Although they don't wear them for everything. So this is what they have now. See whether you like them or dislike them. Mm. 
This is from a later retreat, a later retreat, these ones, yes. A little bit short, this one actually. Should be a little bit longer. What do you reckon? I think you need to put them onto your mattress. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're a bit creased, aren't they? Yes. If anyone wants to try them on afterwards, uh, you're very welcome to do that. They're based on uh, the Korean style um, realm in Korean Buddhism. But um, has anyone ever seen anyone in these here? No. They, they haven't really caught on. <laughs> That's because other people are also sensible. Uh, and they realise how horrible it is to wear robes. Yes, and there and, they, and there are there are a few people that that wear robes. Always they wear robes, at least when they're on retreat, you know, in formal situations. Uh, and I think it's good to have some diversity, isn't it? At least that is an option. Uh, but so far they've not caught on as a, a general walking down to go to the shops in sort of thing. Instead, we've got this, which is the Kesa, which is a, from the Japanese Zen tradition, uh, which is an abbreviated robe. This is actually like a mini robe. Okay, so <laughs> sort of the, uh, uh, you do need to wear other clothes as well, of course. So it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't cover your embarrassment very effectively. <laughs> so why do we have these likes and dislikes? Well, I've said it in a way, I've said that they've evolved. And you can see how they've emerged, maybe sometimes for, at least the basis of them, for good reasons. You know, we'll, bitter food, for example, we don't like bitter food because poisons are bitter. Uh, and so there are very good evolutionary reasons for certain things, uh, certain preferences. And also, of course, our attractive, the way we're attracted to other people um, has some sexual and social and um, support reasons for it, you know, so that we can actually bond and pair up and raise children and all that kind of thing. So there are good reasons for likes and dislikes. But there are lots of other reasons as well, loads of things. Just, it may just be habituation, it may be just what we're used to. So you know how it is, you had the same cereal all the time when you were a kid, and now you always want to buy the, the same cereal. For a shredded wheat, it must be shredded wheat. You know, I my mum always gave me shredded wheat. Why is there no shredded wheat? You know, so you want what you had as a child. Associations, Maybe for conformism, that you don't want to sort of, I'm not going to wear these silly things, you know, that other people think, think I look really ridiculous. Nobody else wears that kind of thing. So for conformism, we keep on our jeans and our um, shirts and our socks and all that kind of thing. Um, there might be ideas, we might have invented it, we might have a, all these reasons that we get into that have generated our likes. Um, it could even be from before our birth. So it could be genetic, something we've inherited it could be from our, um, our environment as a fetus. It could even be, if you believe in past lives, from past lives. That's maybe why, why do I like this and dislike this? Maybe that's because of experiences uh, before our birth of various kinds. So preferences are the fossil footprints of old habits. Um, and we tend to follow these footprints blindly. Do you remember uh, Winnie the Pooh? In Winnie the Pooh? where it's snowing, and Winnie the Pooh discovers 
some mysterious footprints and thinks it's a wild woozel. Does this make any sense to you, this story? And starts to follow, track the wild woozel, tracking the wild woozel. And a bit later on, there's two of them. And then Piglet comes and joins Winnie the Pooh, and they start tracking the wild woozel, and then there's three of them. Uh, and they get more and more nervous. Now there's four wild woozles. They keep tracking and tracking. And eventually, they realise that they've been walking round and round in circles, round this spinny of trees, following their own footprints. So that's what it's like, it seems to me. That's what likes and dislikes are like. We're sort of just going round and round in circles. That's the wheel of life, isn't it? It's round and round, uh, the spinny, uh, like Winnie the Pooh and the wild woozles. And our identity, to some extent, is a catalogue of our likes and dislikes. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll make this catalogue. Yeah, it's ridiculous. How could anyone like coffee? I'm a tea person. I, I like a chocolate biscuit. I like my tea with soya milk and no sugar in it. I don't like digestive biscuits. Da, 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 da. I, and I can even rehearse these to myself. Uh, my favourite example of this is if you go to a bed and breakfast and you come down for breakfast in the morning... And you sit down at the table and you can sort of smell what they're cooking and that kind of thing. And, and immediately you start, oh, I hope they've got marmalade. I like marmalade, you know, with my to- I hope the toast isn't too, isn't too done. You know, I don't like it really dark and burnt, you know. And uh, should I have a dinner? And it's, you see what I mean? You go through this little thing. And if you're with somebody else, you probably are doing it with them as well. <laughs> yeah, because you go to India and you won't get any of the things you want. <laughs> You better eat it, or you'll starve. Yeah. So it's a it's a very good point, actually. You know, travelling, and and of course, you know, we're notoriously British people travelling to Spain or living in Spain, fish and chips on the Spanish coast. You know, but I like my fish and chips. <laughs> it's disgraceful, really, isn't it? So I can't actually change my likes and dislikes just like that. They're to do with past conditioning. They've arri- I've arrived with them. They are here now. I can't suddenly switch from tea to coffee. I could, of course, but I won't find myself liking it. At least not, not, not immediately. It'll still taste in the way that I don't like. You know. So they're leftovers. That's what I mean about them being fossilised footprints of past behaviour. And whenever I'm passive to my experience, I'll just notice these preferences arising. But what I can change is the future. I can't change the past. They're a legacy, these likes and dislikes. But I can change the future. And the unreflective consequences of getting something I like all the time, however, is to reinforce craving, craving more of it. So there it is, shredded wheat. I get it. I want it the next day as well. I want it the next day as well. You know, and I want more of it. And that's craving arising. And if it's aversion, if it's something I don't like, um, the more I follow that through, the more that aversion is reinforced. reinforced. So uh, I don't like it, I tell myself I don't like it, and I'm generating aversion, I'm generating craving, I'm generating aversion. And so likes and dislikes tend to craving, or tend to aversion. And you, So you remember uh, the link after the feeling link, which is the man and the woman embracing, um, sorry, the, the feeling link, which is the, the person with the arrow in the eye, is... Uh, craving, our thirst, uh, is being given a drink. And after that is grasping. So this is the gap. The gap is if you can stay with the feeling, even though it might be an unpleasant feeling, 
and not immediately zoom through into aversion, which gives the wheel another kick round. And this is the, the secret place of Buddhist practice, really. Likes and dislikes tend to leave, lead to craving and aversion. And I give everything a charge. You know how uh, if you rub a balloon or something, you can get an attractive charge. There's positive and negative charges. I give everything a charge. It's either attractive or it's repulsive. And I've given it that charge through my previous experiences. Um, and it becomes uh, very habitual. One of the things here sometimes is, is mo- the mood of likes and dislikes, incidentally. Do you know that thing where you think, I'd like to go, shall I go down to the Buddhist centre and go and listen to Rat and in your talk? And you think, oh, I don't really feel like it, actually. You know, I haven't eaten yet. And it'll probably, I don't know if I'm really, it may not be very interesting. And, you know, it's a long way to go and it looks like it might rain. And but we, to say again, to some extent, we can be dominated by those moods. The I, the I don't feel like it mood, or or just, oh yeah, I'll switch the computer on and I'll just start following links in YouTube and I'll watch this and I'll watch that and, and you know, then it's three in the morning and I'm going to sleep. <laughs> so we, we can be very passive, I think. And again, we can just be driven along uh, partly by immediate likes and dislikes, but partly by those passive moods. Um, and particularly, I think it's, it's really interesting to watch that mood where you think, oh, I don't really want to do that. I don't feel like it. Or, oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to do that. I do, I do want to do that, you know. Whether maybe, maybe they're not um, particularly beneficial. It's a sort of a paralysis, this being governed by mood. And sometimes, you know, I think, oh, I don't really want to go to the class tonight. And there's a, voice, a little voice in my mind that says, oh, there, there, you know, you don't have to. It's all right. You just go to bed, just lie down, you know. And I think, again, it's a rather insidious little voice sometimes that's doing that. I don't mean that one should be really severe on oneself and, and do lots of things you don't like. No, no, do things you like. It's great to do things you like. But not just be ruled by likes and dislikes. So what's the creative approach? The creative approach is very interesting, it seems to me. It's not to do what you don't like as a sort of, a, as a sort of a, an ascetic practice and avoid doing what you like. That is what the Buddha tried in his early life when he tried self-mortification. He actually tried deliberately making his life horrible and painful because he was told by the religious people of the time that is how you transcend the horrible, heavy, soiled, nasty body and rise into a wonderful mental space of uh, transcendence. But it didn't work. It just didn't work. So this is not the way to do it. The way to do it is to have a different compass. Instead of your compass being the compass of likes and dislikes, the compass becomes the, the compass of skillful and unskillful. And this is how you get off uh, the wheel of life and you go up the spiral. It's by moving your compass and making your decision whenever you can on the basis of, okay, maybe I like it, maybe I don't. But what's the skillful response? In other words, what's the response that will generate happiness and fulfilment for myself and others? Now, of course, there's a, there's a, we're being fooled because the thing about likes, the things that we like, the Weetabix in the morning, is we think that, that because we like it, that is the way to happiness. It's, I mean, it seems very sensible, it seems obvious. The more you have of what you like, the happier you'll be. The weird thing is that it doesn't actually work. And, and really rich people that can have as much shredded wheat as they want, 
they're not happy, <laughs> usually, through that. Um, so, you know, even when you leave school or something, I remember when I was, when I was at school, I was thinking, oh, I'll be free when I leave school. I'll be free, I can do whatever I like. But you're not necessarily any happier because you can just follow your likes and dislikes. Um, and so, paradoxically, the way to become happier, the way to become more fulfilled, is to follow the skillful and the unskillful instead. And a lot of Buddhism is learning what is skillful and what is unskillful. Likes and dislikes are not the same. You've got to change the government, you've got to pick up the captain of the boat, throw him overboard, have a revolution, uh, and in a way the boat is now steered from who knows where, something very deep in the water, like in Coleridge's Ancient Mariner, where there's this spirit in the depths of the ocean that somehow steers the boat out of its, uh, out of its predicament. And being governed by likes and dislikes, incidentally, means that you will be unskillful. If you let them govern you, you're bound to be unskillful. And this is my argument, because all craving comes from the wish to perpetuate pleasant experiences, and all aversion comes from a wish to escape unpleasant experiences. And craving and aversion are unskillful states of mind. They're states of mind that close you down, uh, that make you callous. Uh, that make you not really look after yourself or others properly. Things go wrong uh, with craving and aversion. Life becomes unsatisfactory, and the reason is because the world doesn't actually match my wants. I can't actually always get what I want. So unskillfulness comes from craving, and it leads to frustration and misery. And sometimes I think, am I going to carry on living in this way? You know, my last day on earth, will I still be running my life by, oh, oh no, please nurse, you know, I, want, I don't want coffee, I want tea, you know. <laughs> well, that's what's going to be happening. So this is the ethics stage of the Buddhist path. And it doesn't, as I say, mean not doing what you want and doing what you don't want. Skillful and unskillful are different categories. It can be very skillful to do what you like. And this is what happened with the Buddha. He tried all this self-mortification and then he remembered when he was a boy sitting under the rose apple tree when he went into this blissful reverie quite spontaneously and he thought that was really nice but there was nothing unskillful about that it was just lovely so he realised that that process of, of going deeply into his relaxed mind was the way to enlightenment not fasting and sitting in the sun and all that kind of thing So how do you loosen your likes and dislikes? Um, you need to do that in a way before you can move really through uh, the ethics path of, of switching to uh, uh, skillful and unskillful. Because if the likes and dislikes are really strong, they'll just be compulsive. You won't be able to avoid them. Um, one of them is just try- one of the things we did at that Gukuloka. I thought I'd explore this a bit. I'm going to try this bit, business with robes. I'm going to experiment on other people as well. So the study group I was leading, I said. What I'm going to suggest that we do is that we all write down exactly what we do every mealtime yeah, for a day. So this is what I do for breakfast, this is what I eat, this is where I sit, this is who I talk to, this is the time I arrive. Write that down. The same for lunch, the same for dinner. Write it all down. Put it in a piece of paper, put it in a hat. Randomly draw somebody else's day out of the hat. Try living as somebody else for a day, at least with mealtimes. Um, and I'm glad to say, um, there was one person in the group who said, I'm not going to do that, I refuse. Um, fair enough. But the, all the others tried it, and it was really interesting. So the person that always spent the whole of lunchtime 
doing yoga and not having lunch, they had to sit there and tuck in to a huge lunch. The person who usually sat down and tucked into a huge lunch had to have no lunch at all and go and do yoga. But the weird thing was that the yoga person wanted to do yoga. It's not that it was horrible. And the lunch person wanted to eat lots of food, you know. So, and, and, the, and the overall sum of pleasant and unpleasant things happening wasn't changed because they were just swapping it around. And that was really interesting to do that. And I, I do recommend that you try that, maybe. It's, called, it's a practice in Buddhism, a traditional practice called the exchange of self and other, uh, which is particularly recommended by Shantideva. And there are many, many ways of doing it, including meditation. Okay, so we could say a lot more, actually, about the scanners. I haven't talked very much about the perception scanner. Uh, the, the one, the lookout in the boat that's actually telling the, the boat where to go. Uh, and that's very interesting. There are a lot of habits involved with perception as well. Our, our habitual ways of seeing things and describing things. The, rec- the recognition process. What it is that we turn our attention to. What it is that we ignore. This is all extremely interesting. Um, and also the consciousness scandal, the, the self-awareness scandal. I haven't talked much about that. And that's where the really deep identification comes in, the I am. This conceit, the Buddha calls it the conceit I am. A very, very subtle way of identifying, a very subtle habit. um, Where, in a sense, the Buddha is saying you don't actually have to do that. You don't have to sit there thinking all the time, uh, or even intuiting, this is me doing this, you know, I'm having this experience. You can just flow through your life spontaneously. Just You can be there in the whole of your experience. Because one of the revolutionary things the Buddha said was, all you are is the five skandhas. You are the boat, that's your body, and your objective experience. You are your awareness. You are your perceptions. You are your habit energies. You are your feelings. There's nothing else there. There's no self behind those things. And it's one of the basic revolutionary teachings of Buddhism. So the I am conceit, the conceit I am, is the sense that we always have that there must be more to us than our actual experience. There must be something having the experience. Um, But apparently not. Interesting. Um, Now, I haven't got much time to go into this, but I just want to finish by talking about the transformation of the skandhas in the tantric uh, approach. And this is very interesting, uh, I think, uh, because this is connected with the mandala of the five Buddhas. And each of the, of the Buddhas on this mandala represents the transformation of one of the skandhas into um, wisdom. Uh, and I'll just tell you briefly what that is, and then I need to stop. To stop. Um, and this is part of the process of noticing the boundary of yourself and stepping over that boundary. Trying uh, exchanging self another at mealtimes is an example of that. Rather than insisting on, no, I must just do what I like and I must avoid what I don't like, just try being somebody else. Stepping over the boundary of the self and experimenting with that process. And there are lots of ways of doing that. And in a way, again, a lot of Buddhist practice, particularly insight practice, is to do with stepping over the boundary of the self. Um, So you finally break through habit by creating the body of a Buddha. That's what's said in mythical terms. And every, uh, each of the five skandhas um, has a transcendental counterpart 
according to the tantric uh, approach. And this is described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So the Tibetan Book of the Dead actually uh, talks about how your different skandhas at death will appear to you vividly in the form of these Buddhas. Uh, and it describes which skandha. It, it, it talks about the purification of the skandha of form, uh, uh, the skandha of the boat, if you like, and what that turns into as it purifies. Um, it says that purifying form gives you the wisdom of the blue diamond Buddha of the East. And it says that, um, well, his name means uh, complete solidity, Akshobhya. And purifying preferences, your likes and dislikes, that gives you the tranquil wisdom of the yellow Buddha of the South, uh, the holder of rich beauty. Purifying your perceptions gives you the clear wisdom of the red Buddha of the West, endless shining. And finally, purifying self-awareness or consciousness gives you the complete wisdom of the white central Buddha, illuminating sun. Oh, and then there's one more. The habit energies, purifying the habit energies, gives you the wisdom of the green Buddha of the north, whose name means unfailing wizardry, and whose wisdom is the wisdom of unending compassionate action. Uh, And it's this unending compassionate action which is said to destroy the fear that's engendered by habit. If you're trapped in habit, it's anxiety that's doing that. And the green Buddha of the north represents fearlessness and overcoming that fear. He has no habit, and so he's totally mysterious, and he's associated with the invisible sun at midnight. That's his time of day. Um, So those those are the transcendences using the five Buddhas. So maybe, maybe this doesn't relate to you at all, maybe you don't like that kind of approach, but sometimes that image-based approach can be really inspiring. And you think, yeah, that's what I'm going to do with my head of energies. I'm going to transform them into the wisdom of the Green Buddha of the North. The Green Buddha represents a complete breaking through of habit. He's, his his uh, behaviour is described as total action. He belongs to the karma, the action family, which is always spontaneous, always appropriate, and always creative. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.